We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. So let's read our text, Matthew chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So what's so important about Palm Sunday? Like, why do we as Christians, year after year after year, look back to this particular moment in the gospel story, even celebrate this moment in the gospel story? This moment where, as we just saw, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and receives both praise and criticism from those surrounding him. Well, the most obvious reason we celebrate this particular moment in the gospel story is because it marks the beginning of the most important ground-shaking week in human history, what we Christians call Holy Week. Palm Sunday is the beginning of the week in which Jesus of Nazareth, whom we call Lord, was crucified under Pontius Pilate. This is the week around which human history orbits. If you don't believe me, ask Paul, Ephesians 1. He says that what happened in and through Jesus on Holy Week was nothing less than the plan of God for the fullness of time. More importantly for us today, this is the week around which our entire salvation orbits. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I preached to you, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. And so that's where we're headed next week as we look forward to celebrating Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Resurrection Sunday. But today, in some sense, we get to pause for a moment 
and we get to reflect on the beginning of the week-long journey of Jesus. Today in Matthew 21, we get to watch as Jesus enters into Jerusalem and in some sense, in some real sense, displays his royal kingship. But, as we'll see, he does it in ways that completely subverts our categories of kingship. To put it simply, on Palm Sunday, we encounter a king and a kingdom that is not of this world. It's a king and a kingdom so different from the kings and kingdoms of the world that the leaders of Jerusalem will ultimately look at Jesus and say, we have no king but Caesar. Whatever kingship is, according to the leaders of Jerusalem, Jesus doesn't fit the bill. To which Matthew in our text simply responds, yes, he does. And so with that said, let's jump into our passage, verse 1 down to verse 5. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so Matthew sets the scenes for us this morning by saying that they drew near to Jerusalem. So who's the they here in verse 1? This is important. Who's the they with Jesus? Well, we know, of course, that It includes Jesus. We know, of course, that it includes the 12 disciples who will later become the 12 apostles. But we also know that this they here, this crowd, um, includes a large crowd of people. Just above in Matthew 20, verse 29, Matthew tells us that as they drew, as they went out of Jericho on their way to Jerusalem, a great crowd followed him. And so for a moment, I want you to get a kind of mental image in your head of this crowd. I want you to imagine the kinds of people that are flocking to Jesus and following him into Jerusalem. As I already said, you've got the 12 disciples. And when you think about them, you should think of men who are committed to following Jesus. They really are. They've come to believe in some sense that he is the Messiah. And yet these 12 disciples are still very confused about the Messiah's mission. Yes, Peter rightly confesses in Matthew 18, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And yet just a chapter later in Matthew 19, James and John clearly display that they are confused about what Jesus has come to do. They ask Jesus, actually, they ask, their mother asked Jesus on their behalf, can we sit at your right and left hand when you come into your kingdom? They think Jesus is going to set up a literal throne in Jerusalem, and they want to be there with him. They want a kingdom that is of this world. So you've got the 12. 
Next, you've likely got a large number of people in this crowd who've experienced miraculous healing at the hands of Jesus. Whether it's demonic oppression or an inability to walk or deafness of the ears or leprosy, whatever it was, these are people who before they met Jesus suffered physically and mentally and spiritually their entire lives. They're people that society, as we know from the gospels themselves, despised, shunned, pushed away. In fact, the one word that was most used among the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus to describe these broken people was the Greek word hamartulus, sinners. And yet, as we see all throughout the gospel, these are the very people that Jesus draws near to. Matthew 9, Jesus says, I did not come to call righteous people, but sinners to repentance. So that's the second layer of this crowd. Third and last, you've also likely got a large number of parents, and specifically, you've got a large number of children. Jesus, uh, in Matthew 19, we read this. Children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them. And then later on in 21, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem and gets into the temple, we read this. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and when they heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? To which Jesus responds and says, yes. Have you never read in Psalm 8 that God has prepared praise from the mouth, mouths of nursing infants and children? So instead of despising children, Jesus draws near to them too. So again, imagine this crowd. You've got the 12 disciples who believe Jesus but need help with their unbelief. You've got the poor and the despised who've been heard and seen and lifted up by Jesus. You've got the lame and the blind who've been healed by Jesus. And you've got nursing infants and children who apparently can't stop singing the praises of Jesus. If you're a Pharisee or a religious leader, a scribe in Jerusalem at the time, it's likely that this crowd coming towards Jerusalem alone would have made you roll your eyes at the idea that Jesus could be Israel's Messiah. I mean, how in the world could the Messiah, the King of Israel, this promised royal son of David, gather to himself a people like this? Shouldn't it be the righteous surrounding Jesus? Throwing out the wicked? Shouldn't it be the people who followed the rules? Who've kept themselves pure from the brokenness of the world? And yet here Jesus comes with the crowd of most unlikely group of people. And if that weren't shocking enough for the religious leaders, Matthew tells us that Jesus comes to the gates of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Matthew 21, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him 
and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So I think we start to see in this, in this section why it is that your Bible likely has the subtitle above this passage, the triumphal entry, right? Like you look above verse 1, the triumphal entry. So again, let's imagine we're there. Let's imagine that we're in Jerusalem, we're standing next to some of the Pharisees and the scribes. Maybe we've got a few Roman soldiers who would have been there guarding the inside and outside of the temple. We're standing by and we're watching the commotion and we begin to see these crowds of people. Like probably thousands of people funneling their way into Jerusalem. We see children. We see the poor. We see men and women of all stripes and ages. We see people who, as the saying goes, look like they're on their last leg. And not only that, as the crowd draws near, we start to hear a chant. As the crowd draws near, we start to make out the words, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now again, if you're a religious leader in Jerusalem at the time, you're probably starting to get a little nervous at this point. Right? Like, you're nervous because... You know that this chant is unmistakably messianic. It's charged with a political claim and a political atmosphere. The claim is that there is a new king coming to town. That Israel's Messiah, the son of David, the long-awaited king of Israel is in your midst. Hosanna to the son of David. Now, taking this a little bit further, if you're a Jewish scribe at the time, you would also immediately recognize that the crowds aren't making this chant up. Now, this is a direct quotation from Psalm 118. This is what we read in Psalm 118. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so, again, imagine for a moment, as you see these crowds rolling in and as you hear the messianic chant of Psalm 118, what are you imagining to see next? What are you imagining to see next. Well, I think given the messianic nature of the song, given the heightened politics of the day, what you'd expect to see is a gloriously robed figure riding on some kind of war horse or golden chariot with a crown on his head and a sword in hand. Like that's what you probably expect to see. And I say that primarily because everything about this moment up to this point feels very much like what the Romans would do when they conquered a city, right? Like they would ride through the streets 
with their leader on a war horse, shouting praises to the glories of Rome. Yet what do we see in the midst of this crowd? We see the Lord of glory himself. But what we see shatters our expectations, if we're really looking. He's mounted not on a war horse, nor on a golden chariot, but according to Matthew, on a donkey. And that's it. There's no glorious robe. There's no trumpets sounding. There's no crown on his head. There's no earthly spoils from a captured city. No, all we see is a man from Nazareth seated on a donkey amidst a crowd of very strange and largely questionable people. Like That's the picture. And yet Matthew says that this moment, this picture that we can see in our minds was something that God had prepared a long time ago. Matthew quotes Zechariah 9, 9, right there in verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, which is Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So I want to ask again, what's so important about Palm Sunday? Why do we celebrate this particular moment year after year after year? Well, I would submit this, that we do this because according to Matthew, in this particular moment, we are beholding our king. We are beholding with utter shock the majesty of his humility. We're beholding what it looks like for the one who, though he was rich in divine majesty, yet for your sake became poor so that in him you might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8. That's what's happening here. We are beholding the majesty of our king. Now, I do want to confess something to you this morning. And that's that as I was studying this passage and preparing for this sermon, I had to go and undergo a pretty seismic shift in my perspective and in my thinking on this story. To put it simply, I had to reckon with the fact that I was still reading this story through a primarily earthly lens. That is until I ran across a quote from none other than Augustine, church father, Let me read you what he says in his commentary on this passage. Augustine writes, For Jesus, this is a moment of condescension. It is not an advancement for one who is the Son of God, equal to the Father, the Word through whom all things were made to become King of Israel. Rather, for Jesus, this moment, Palm Sunday, is an indication of his pity, not an increase in his power. Friends, this was like a ticking time bomb in my study. 
What's Augustine saying? He's saying that though it's tempting to view this story, this moment in Matthew's gospel, as an earthly victory for Jesus, like, right, if there's one moment in the gospel where Jesus actually receives the glory due his name before the resurrection, wouldn't it be this moment? Crowds are shouting in the streets, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. People are spreading their cloaks on the road. They're cutting down branches from trees to lay before Jesus as a sign of honor. The whole city, Matthew says, it's stirred up by the sight and sound of Jesus. And after all, our Bibles call this a triumphal entry. But what Augustine says is though, though it's tempting to view this as an earthly victory for Jesus, when you step back and you view this moment from heaven, when you understand who it is who's seated on the back of a donkey riding into Jerusalem, you quickly realize that for Jesus, this is not a moment of exaltation. This is a moment of humiliation. It's a moment, as Augustine says, of divine condescension. Why? Because Jesus doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need to hear the cries, Hosanna in the highest. He doesn't need a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, let alone any other city of the world. Friends, because Jesus, the eternal, this is because Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is who he is apart from anyone recognizing it. His glory is eternal. His beauty is infinite. His majesty exceeds space and time itself, let alone little Jerusalem. This is why in Luke's account of this story, there's this comical moment. In Luke's account of this story, which is, is the same story, he notes that the Pharisees begin to grumble when they hear the chants of the crowds, and they say to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples for saying such things. You know how Jesus responds? He says, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the very stones beneath your feet would cry out. So from the perspective of heaven, if this isn't a moment of triumph for Jesus, then what is it? And I think the answer is that Palm Sunday is a demonstration of the gospel itself. Palm Sunday is a demonstration of the good news that Jesus, the one who needs absolutely no introduction, graciously decides to introduce himself to us. The one, Jesus could have just appeared on the earth and immediately demanded glory. Every knee would have bowed and said, Jesus is Lord. But instead, he willingly submits to questions like the one in verse 10. Who is this? Like the very fact that we are allowed to ask this question aloud in the presence of the king of the universe is a demonstration of grace. Like Jesus is that patient with us. 
the Lord of glory himself standing right in front of us, and we can say, who is this? This is amazing. You can't put it better than Paul in Philippians 2. I, I, I have a hard time writing a sermon without quoting this passage. Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be used to his own advantage, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So from his birth in Bethlehem to the crucifixion outside Jerusalem, the movement of Jesus toward us is downward. Palm Sunday, even as the crowds are standing in the streets and singing his praises, is a downward movement for Jesus. Augustine reminds us it's a condescension. And ultimately, this condescension would lead five days later to crucifixion. The lowest point. Five days later, the crowd's cry of Hosanna to the highest would turn in to a mother's weeping at the feet of her crucified son. Remember, Jesus is riding in on none other than Passover week. This is the week that God in Exodus passed over the sins of his people when he saw the blood on the doorpost. And friends, that was only a foretaste of what God would do when he saw the blood of his son. It doesn't stop there, though. Paul continues in Philippians. He says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at, so that at the name of the crucified and risen Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. So Christ's entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, if it's to be considered a triumph at all, is nothing but a foretaste of the triumph that's coming. It's a foretaste of his triumph over sin the devil, and ultimately death itself. Hebrews chapter 2, one of my favorite texts of Scripture. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Why? Why did Jesus come on Palm Sunday? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's where Palm Sunday is headed. It's headed toward Jesus delivered up for our sins. It's headed towards Good Friday, this coming Friday. It's headed toward Resurrection Sunday where Jesus is not only delivered up for our sins, but delivers us from death itself. I'll let Pastor Tyler rejoice in that more with you guys next week on Easter Sunday. And I'll end by asking the question, where does Palm Sunday leave us today? Where, what does Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem have to do with 
our walk with Christ today. And I'm going to cheat just a little bit by jumping straight from one passage to another. I want to jump from Matthew chapter 21 to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You can turn there if you want, but I'll read it to you. And I want to do this because according to the Apostle Paul, we Christians are on a triumphal procession ourselves. Listen to what Paul says in verse 15, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Thanks be to God, who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So we're on a triumphal procession ourselves. And as we participate in this procession, God himself spreads the fragrance of Christ through us. It's as if Paul wants us to imagine ourselves as little gardens planted by God in particular times and places and among particular people, all for the purpose of spreading the fragrance of the most beautiful flower in the world, Christ Jesus himself. And Paul says that that fragrance spreading work, you could call it the Great Commission, that work is a triumphal procession. So here's what I want to do. I want to let the triumphal of Jesus into Jerusalem, the, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, shape our triumphal procession throughout the world. So what might, like, what might that look like? First, if Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on nothing more than a donkey, then we should, accept, um, we should expect the same kind of transportation. We shouldn't expect to ride throughout the world on a dazzling war horse or a golden chariot, conquering city after city. Now, Jesus leads the way on a humble donkey. He shows us that God forever uses humble means to accomplish great purposes. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong, Paul says. God has chosen what is low and despised in the world like a donkey. Even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So Christian, walk humbly with your God. Second, if the triumphal of Jesus into Jerusalem was prepared beforehand by God through the promises of his word, like Zechariah 9.9, so also our procession throughout the world has been prepared by God. And it's been prepared through the very same promises. Ephesians 2.10, you are God's workmanship, in, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So Christian, walk humbly with your God. Walk on the path that he himself has prepared. Let the promises of God's word be the ground beneath your feet. Third and last. If the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem was met with both joy and anger, with both reception and rejection, 
so also our triumphal procession throughout the world will be met the same. We will be received or, or and we will be rejected. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians in that same passage goes on to say, we are the aroma of God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. So just think about Palm Sunday, what we just read. You've got one group who is utterly astounded and joyful that Jesus is coming to town. They're laying their cloaks before him, cutting branches from trees, singing Psalm 118 to the glories of Christ. And at the same time, you've got a group of Pharisees and religious leaders pouting in the corner, upset and angry, and telling Jesus that these people need to quiet it down. To which Jesus responds, if they were quiet, the stones themselves would shout out my glory. So let Jesus set the expectation for your journey ahead because he himself has walked it. He has, himself has been received and rejected. So brothers and sisters of Emmaus, brothers and sisters of Trinity, any Christian here today, I want to leave you with only one charge, and it's this. Keep walking the triumphal procession with Jesus. Keep walking. It is a triumphal procession after all. You are going, just, just know, leaving today, this Sunday, you're going to be rejected. You're going to have to pick up your cross and follow Christ to Golgotha. But remember, Jesus goes before you. And on the way, Jesus has defeated death in the meantime. And so you can be sure with absolute certainty that as you walk this triumphal procession with Jesus, you are headed in the same direction as Jesus. Resurrection. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have gone before us. Not, not only did you take on our flesh and suffer for our sins, you have gone before us in every way imaginable, yet without sin. Lord, what we're tempted to view as a triumphal moment for you is yet again another humiliation considering who you are, the eternal Son of God. Enduring utter humiliation for us. Lord, would you cause us by your Spirit to humble ourselves and walk the same path with our Lord? Would you keep leading the way for Emmaus Church and for Trinity Church? Would you cause the aroma of yourself to, to, to go through us, Lord, to spread through us to others? Lord, would you save countless thousands and thousands of people in the days ahead? Through Emmaus, through Trinity, through every local church in the world, would you continue doing your work until Resurrection Day? Lord, we pray this in your beautiful, matchless name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.